Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. I'm David Lally, the producer, and today we're continuing our series on how to love and be loved. In this episode, Brian and Joe Ehrman discuss the three wounds of love. You'll discover how wounds from your past can have a devastating impact on the way you feel about yourself and about others. Here's Brian and Joe. The next topic we're going to cover is the three wounds of love. We're going to spend time delving into the barriers to intimacy, the barriers to relationship with yourself and with others. Joe, talk to us about the three wounds of love. Well, I think all of us come into this world with three basic questions. And the first is a question of identity. Who am I? Mm -hmm. The second is a question of intimacy. Who will love me? Mm -hmm. And the third is one of industry. What can I do with my life? Those are questions that you inherently are born with that need to be answered. Right. Ideally, they would be answered in the loving context of a family. So all of us come into this world and we are hurt one way or another by our own nature. Mm -hmm. All of us have some kind of free will. We have the capacity to make good choices and bad choices, to do what is right or to do what is wrong. The Mm -hmm. theological term for that is total depravity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there is a nature wound that sometimes we wound ourselves Mm -hmm. in this world. Second wound comes just out of our nurturing. We grow up in an unperfect world. None of us had perfect families. Right. None of us had perfect parents, perfect siblings, or perfect peers. Mm-hmm. All of us walk through this world and have somebody that came in and kind of gave us the wrong answer to those three questions. Mm-hmm. They hurt us. They gave us a bad concept about who and what they are. And I don't think you can go through this world and through this life without being hurt. A hurt that's a deep psychological hurt that hurts our self-image and self-understanding. Nobody's born in a vacuum. And it also will allow us, when we have understanding here, this will lead us later on to having empathy for self and others. Because we're able to have empathy for those who who raised us, perhaps, as best they could and maybe imperfectly, you know. So you have nature, you have nurture and and the environment group and what else well then there's this third thing i call national wounds so Mm -hmm. there's the wounds that the culture gives to people false definitions of masculinity Mm -hmm. hurts every boy in this country right false definitions of femininity hurts every girl in this we're fed certain amount of lies about our personhood our values and our work maybe where we grew up uh, race religion gender all of those different things societal positions so you're saying there's an impact that our society and our culture has upon us as well. Yeah, absolutely. And too many of us are identified and named or titled by our zip codes, by our class, by our right. race, by the access we have to things in this world. Mm-hmm. So I think it's impossible to go through life without being wounded. And a wound is some kind of ongoing, deep psychological, social, or spiritual kind of uh a woundedness or hemorrhaging of our souls. It makes us question, who am I? What am I? Am I lovable? Am I worthy? Am I valuable? Those kinds of questions. What are some of the other significant consequences of these wounds? Well, I think the consequences are that it allows you never to fully be who you were created to be. Mm. Uh, It never allows you fully to enter into relationships. It forces you almost to be self-centered and not other-centered in the world. 
hide. You try to hide. You live behind these facades and these walls, not wanting to reveal those scars, those deep wounds that we have bought into right. and continually play in the tapes of our minds. There's one question I've asked over a million people, and in, 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 I've asked them by response to raise their hands. And I have yet to be in an environment of an event where I have asked a question and not gotten an affirmative response to this. And I'll say, who in the audience feels like they have some untapped potential? And every single person in the room will raise their hand. And yet, when they want to start tapping into their potential, most people want to change their circumstances, but they don't want to change themselves. The challenge is, if you change yourself, the circumstances will change also. People would like their tap into their potential. They'd like to change their situation. They'd like to change their circumstances, but don't want to look at this. And that's why, although this may sound almost altruistic and very heady information we're talking about here, as if it's just conceptual, this is extraordinarily practical, pragmatic content. Because if you go to work on you and you make yourself to be the best you're capable of being and better than for others, it'll manifest itself in every area of your life. So even who am I? will lead you to who will love me, will also lead you to how you love them. And then it'll also manifest itself in what you do. So when we start with the first question, ultimately it manifests itself in all and all those applications. We, we talk about these, these side effects. For example, uh, one of the, the side effects you've talked about in regards to your nature and, and how you're naturally wired is that one of the consequences of nature wounds is that a person tends to become anti-relational. Can you spend a little time on expanding that for us? Yeah, let me say this. I think as I've traveled this country and have worked with men and women, I believe the number one wound in our society is a father wound. Mm -hmm. It's the number one wound in our culture, in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, a wound from the father leaves this tremendous father longing. It would have been met. It would not have existed in a healthy relationship with our dads. Mm. But there's a distance and a separation from generations of false concepts of masculinity. So to me, there's three kinds of dads. One are missing dads. Mm -hmm. Those are dads that have abdicated their roles and responsibilities in their homes and in their relationship to their kids. Mm -hmm. Again, think of the fatherlessness in this country. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of missing dads, Mm -hmm. and the numbers are staggering. Second kind of dad is a dismissive dad. It's a dad that in the home has a presence, but doesn't really invest in the lives of his children. Kind of leaves you at the end of your life when your dad dies. He's kind of like the Lone Ranger, and you ask, who was that master? Mm -hmm. He might have come in the home. He might have taken you to the church, gone to the ballpark, but he never revealed who and what he was. So emotionally didn't connect. Yeah, yeah, just emotionally distant. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the third kind of dad is a, is a mission-minded dad. Mm-hmm. I think that's a dad that understands that his greatest responsibility is to love and nurture his children, mm-hmm. to give them proper definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman, mm-hmm. to demonstrate his love and commitment and concern for them, and to help their children find whatever their cause or purpose is in this world. Mm-hmm. For those of you that are listening, uh, if you have a mission-minded dad, you need to just get on your knees and thank God for the privilege and the opportunity that you had. Mm-hmm. Because my sense is an awful lot of people did not have that. Right. I think coming from the missing and dismissive dads, that wound manifests itself in three different ways. Mm-hmm. 
One is kind of a pathological drive to addictions. It's to numb out the pain of that separation of not getting the affirmation and the love from your father. Mm. And we do whatever we can to numb that pain. So you have addictions of alcohol, drugs, pornography. You separate the self and medicate it with some kind of medication in this world. Mm -hmm. That's a painful, painful wound. Then the second kind of wound is also pathological, but it's a pathological drive towards success. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think what you end up saying is, I'm going to succeed in life. I'm going to be so successful at whatever field I choose that my father's going to be forced to look at me and to see that I was someone special, someone that really was worthy of their love and acceptance. I think the danger there is that we're so driven to succeed, we often don't care about the expense to our family, to our children. Right. It's a drive to meet a need that should have organically been met Mm -hmm. just because you were the child of that dad. So it's conditional love is what's felt. And I'm going to earn your love. I'm going to earn your affection. I'll show you by achievement. And this can show up in uh, whether you got an A on the report card or whether you got the hit at the baseball game, that your self-worth was received by your actual competence of doing something. And like I say, you you were sharing with me uh, before that a person who even didn't have a father in the house or a parent in the house, that they can still have this pathological drive to achieve for the father they never knew. Now, I've been in and around the NFL for 30-some years. Right. I would say the number one common denominator of professional football players, mm-hmm. and I suspect it's true in sports and in boardrooms across America, is father-son dysfunction. Mm. We are so driven to succeed. And football is one of those sports, in order to excel, you have to drive and push yourself beyond right. in a context that's very unhealthy. Right. It's that striving. Right. And what happens there is not only do you numb out on the addictions, but you're going to burn out given a life that has no relationships, Mm -hmm. no cause other than to try to get the love and attention of a father that probably never had it to give to you. You know, it's interesting how you say that, Joe. The challenge with it, though, is that there's an awful lot of people who have this same wound where they've been pathologically driven for acceptance or love and approval and they've achieved in a certain area maybe they've pathologically poured themselves into business or finances or athletic achievement so they've gotten the result and they've gotten what the society says these are the achievers they're held up they're at the awards shows they're at the banquets they're they're famous and yet they may be extraordinarily unhealthy extraordinarily uh, uh, wounded and so the challenge is for people listening, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't mind having their kind of wound and getting the results with it. Yeah. The problem with that is just how empty their lives are. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know people that have had great success. Right. But they built it on all of the wrong reasons and all of the wrong foundations. It's performance-based trying to get some kind of love and acceptance that their fathers never had to give to them. Right. Think about young boys in this country. Who are the role models for masculinity? 
oh, they tend to be professional athletes. Always, yeah. Why? They have athletic ability. They compete and win against other men. They have sexual conquest and economic success. Right. That's striving after all of the wrong values sure. about what it means to be a human being. Right. And so it's interesting you bring that up. I'm reminded of the story of the great San Diego Charger, a Hall of Famer, Lance Allworth. He was uh, a wide receiver for the Chargers Hall of Famer. Uh, before Jerry Rice, he wrote all the records in the NFL for wide receiving. And after he gave up football, he, he entered into some destructive behaviors and so on and so forth and kind of came through the process. And um, I saw him being interviewed talking about how he had basically been driven by desiring his father's love and approval. He talked about how he played in the Rose Bowl and he was the MVP of the Rose Bowl. And then he got 10 catches in the Rose Bowl. Pretty big game to get 10 catches. The ball was thrown to him 11 times. He said when he, when he came off the field, the only thing his father talked about was the catch that he missed. And so many people have had this conditional experience, whether they've had a grade at school. The society perpetuates. There's a national education organization outsourcing private tutoring for kids in school. And they have an ad where a little boy, 14-year-old, comes up to his mom and hands her a report card, I have something special for you. And mom tears up and gets all excited and verklempt over the fact that he's got an A. And now you can see the face on the boy that he's loved because he got A's on his report card. And it's this conditional love. And so it can produce this pathological striving. So I think we recognize that achievement is good, but achievement for the right reason is better. Oh, absolutely. And it's the only way they have meaning and purpose in this mm -hmm. world. I, I'll tell you my story of my own woundedness, uh, how I entered into that. You know, one night I was out preaching in a church, and my oldest son was about three or four years old, and his name is Barney. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, we didn't have a babysitter that night. So I had to take him out with me, and uh, I remember my wife dressed him up just like me. We had blue blazers, white shirts, ties, khaki pants. And we got to the church, and he looked at me, and he says, Hey, Dad, can I carry your Bible? In? And I gave him my Bible, and, you know, me and my boy are walking into that church together. And we sat down, and I said, Listen, Barney, if you're real good while I'm speaking, when I'm done, I'll take you out for ice cream. You can order anything you want. Mm -hmm. And I was standing up in that pulpit looking out at my boy and thinking, Geez, he looks just like me. <laughs> I must have been like him when I was a boy. Mm. And I sat back down, and Barney just leaned over, and he said, Dad, that was real good. And I took him that night for ice cream, and he, I'll never forget he ordered a hot fudge sundae with M&M peanuts and a chocolate milkshake. Oh. Nine o'clock at night, my wife would have killed me. <laughs> but we're driving home in the evening, and he's sitting in that shotgun position. He's got the seatbelt uh, across his chest. And he's just slumped over, sound asleep. And I had this magical, almost mystical kind of moment. It was like my soul just leapt out and connected with his. And I had this profound sense of the love and appreciation I had for him. You know, it was this thought that out of all of the children in the world, God gave him to me. Mm. The love was incredible. And then it seemed within a matter of seconds, this darkness came across the car. And I was about 37 years old, and it was the first time I was ever able to verbalize the thought, you know, I don't think my father ever looked at me that way. 
I can't imagine a moment when he just felt that out of all the children in the world, I was his gift. For me, it was always about some kind of performance, some kind of achievement to kind of get that love. And I remember coming home that night and uh, really I came home with two boys, my own wounded little boy and my son, Barney. Mm. And I gave that to my wife. I gave myself, and, I, and I'd like to say to the women out there, you have way more power uh, to speak into the lives of your husbands and sons than this culture would ever lead you to believe. I gave that wounded boy to my wife, and I'd say I've learned more about masculinity from my wife than any other person in my life. Because mm. think about it, if it's masculinity is about relationships and a cause, who knows that better than women mm. and wives and mothers in this culture? So what Paul and I did, we kind of sat down and started talking through this. And I had to go inward, and I had to remember kind of old wounded stories about my father. Now up until that point, I don't think I could ever recollect a story of him up until the age of 13 or 14 years old. Mm -hmm. But my earliest memory of my dad was my mother telling me, your father's coming home. Now my father was an ex-boxer. He worked on the Great Lakes, on the drilling and dredge boats, spent his whole life. I think my father felt that his job was to come back into the house every few years and to make sure that Joe Jr. was growing up as a man. Mm -hmm. And his definition was men don't cry, need, feel, touch. If you're going to be a man in this world, you've got to dominate and control. So I remember as a little boy, the anticipation, my dad's coming home. And the memory that I was able to recall was him coming home and taking me down into the basement. And there my father put up his hands. And I had to stand there as this little boy and throw these jabs and combinations. And I had to get them just right for my father. And I can remember the frustration of not being able to get the snap and the jab that my father wanted. And I can remember his frustration. Mm. Then I remember my father just kind of reaching out and slapping me lightly on the face to the point where these tears just started coming down my cheek. Mm. And I remember all I ever wanted from my father was to feel the strength of his arms around me, to look me in the eye and say, I love you. You're my son. Not based on performance, not based on achievement, not based on the fact that one day you're going to be an NFL player, just because I was given to him. Mm. But what my father did to me, I think happens to so many people in this culture. It's part of that nurture wound. As we walk through life, there are people that speak into our lives and hurt us. Now, my father said, men don't cry, men don't need, men don't touch. I'm this little boy needing, feeling, weeping. My concept was this. If men don't do those kind of things and I'm doing them, there must be something the matter with me. Mm. Somehow when God put the masculine formula together in me, he added this feminine stuff, this needy feeling stuff. And what my father did was shamed my masculinity. And shame's different than guilt. Guilt is when you do something wrong. With guilt, you can go say, I'm a sorry. You can make right. an apology, some kind of atonement. Shame isn't the concept that I do wrong things. It's a concept that I am wrong right. in the deepest part of me. 
And I think as a young boy at that age, I learned to start building a facade built on those three lies about masculinity. Because I think if you don't feel that you have the right stuff, you're going to create some kind of bluff. Right. So I built this wall and I made a fundamental commitment as a little boy that nobody was ever going to come behind that wall again and see this needy weeping guy. Because my thought was if they ever saw that part of me, they too would walk out and reject me. Now, were you aware of this before that experience? Had, had Were these thoughts that had come to you beforehand? No, this was, this was totally, I took the opportunity of having that experience in the car with my son, coming back, sitting there, and trying to bring verbiage, trying to bring this experience to work. This is the power of journaling, mm-hmm. because you can write these stories out and you can start connecting dots in your life. Right. See, it's not the question. I think an awful lot of people are afraid to go enter into these wounds. Somehow they think to enter into these wounds is going to bring death to them. Right. But the reality is it's the only way to find life. You've got to enter into those wounds. You've got to bring it to conscious memory. You've got to think about it, and then you've got to verbalize it. And you've got to be able to share it with someone that can look you in the eye and affirm who and what you are. That's the beginning of healing. You know, it's interesting, as I prepared for this material, I'm always a person who likes to teach from my own experience. And so I have been endeavoring to help people ultimately have their own breakthrough and to cultivate a breakthrough environment for people. So I've started to read many of my own journals. My own journals go back 19 years and analyzing different things and different patterns that show up again and again and again. But I am the last person in the world who would ever consider himself a victim. In fact, that word's probably not a big part of my vocabulary. And I've been a very driven, focused guy since I can remember. And I came to America and I got off the boat with 92 bucks in my wallet and built this great big business and and have had all this great success. But I started to go through and I'm like, well, I'm trying to identify because I don't have the memories of my father that you do. Some people might have a more extreme memory of their father or mother. And some people less. And I, I was definitely one who would less. I'd say my father was, was a, an excellent man who was also passive at the same time. His passion was his family, but he was relationally passive. So he was borderline between dismissive and mission-minded. Okay, so he's kind of in between both. So I, ha- I had a good dad, uh, but there was just some gaps, just like everyone, right? So I started to go through an exercise of trying to s- make a list of experiences I had or situations where I was wounded. And I'm gonna tell you that I stared at a journal page for hours. And I'd come back to it and I'd do other things. And I'd say, oh, I need to think about this. Even if I can, what, what are some examples? What are some examples? And, and what I found was I absolutely uh, had no permission in my life to ever experience something I could call a wound because a wound was weakness. And a wound being weakness and weakness is not masculine. So I, I started to, by my own definition, so I realized, hang on a second here. In order to prove the fact that I haven't fallen into the wrong concept of masculinity, I need to find a wound, okay? So I, I forced myself to find a wound, almost not make one up, but go dig one up, right? So what happened to me, Joe, was very, very fascinating. I started looking through different experiences and so on and so forth, and I had two experiences with money, one when I was three and one when I was 12 that came up in going over this very content that folks are listening to. And one of them was, I grew up fairly poor, 
in a community that was poor. So we were kind of average, okay? You know, my dad was a good hard worker and so on and so forth. He was a painting contractor. Well, I had a buddy in when I was 12. His name was Willie Ford. And Willie came from the other side of the tracks, the rich side, okay? And Willie had kind of an affluent mother and father. They would lavish resources on their kids instead of love, okay? So they got they got things instead of love, and we got love instead of things, okay? And I always wanted what he had, and he always wanted what I had. So I didn't get invited to Willie Ford's best friend's birthday party, 12 years of age. And I, had, I have not thought about this in over 25 years in preparing for this material. Mm-hmm. So I get invited to this party, and his friend was even wealthier than him. And what happened was they say, well, we do this every year. The parents come out, and they say, hidden around the garden, is we're gonna have a treasure hunt. And hidden around this garden is one pound notes, which would be like a buck, five pound notes, 10 pound notes, 20 pound notes, a 50, and there's 100 pound note buried somewhere in this garden. We're gonna blow the whistle, you guys go running. And it was this was a big walled garden, okay, a big private estate type home. And we're gonna blow the whistle and off you guys go. So they blow the whistle, and I, you can imagine. I mean, at the time I was making, my dad had an allowance for me of two cents a week, okay? So there's a hundred pound note laying around the place. So I am charging around this garden, left, right, and center, left, right, and center. Somewhere in the garden, I hear some kid shout, I got a fiver. I, I'm, now I'm running faster. Some kid goes, I got a 10. Another kid, I got a 20. Now I am like the Tasmanian devil, tearing through this yard, just going through every bush, everything I can see, every, just tearing around the place. After about four or five minutes, I look around and I'm the only one running around. All the other kids are standing together with the parents and everybody's laughing. And, and I'm like, everybody's laughing. What's going on? Well, sure enough, there was no money. This was all a big joke for oh, the kid. mean. So the deal is, I, now I have not thought about that in 25 years. How I got there was, what has allowed me to be so driven in my life? When I ask myself that question, why have I been driven? What has motivated me? What have been the motivating factors in my life? I found this one, because I remember walking home as a 12-year-old boy, bawling my eyes out, totally humiliated, thinking that's never gonna happen to me again. And from that day going forward, I became a very independently-minded person with regards to money. I remember going home telling my dad, I don't need any money from you anymore. I'm gonna make my own. I started working in a bar when I was 13, told them I was 18. I travel all over Europe by myself. I mean, when I came to America and I got into a motorcycle accident, I had, you know, no money, no, and I became self-reliant and driven in self-reliance, which produced a lot of good results and a lot of benefits and a lot of things that other people have had a desire to follow in. But the motivating factor was I was never going to let that happen to me again. And I find myself in dealing with my kids is my kids have grown up now in an affluent environment. And I am very, very deliberate in teaching them not to be like the kids that I knew growing up who were wealthy kids who lorded it over the ones that didn't have it. You follow me? Yeah. And so I would have gone the rest of my life not being aware of that. And it's not so I could sit down and examine my old navel lint and, oh, look what happened to me. But to understand what drives you and why. Because in understanding that, 
in walking through and having empathy for myself in that situation, allowing me to have empathy for other people who I've also come in contact with who are very money-driven or success-driven or safety-driven in that regard. And then what it's allowed me to do is to help and be more compassionate and to teach folks in the environment I get a chance to teach how to perhaps have the same drive but have it for a different motivation. And so I think there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this CD series who maybe say, I can't identify the wound. But I think the key component is to understand the fact that everybody has wounds, everybody has hurts, and we've all had to deal with them. And we move on. But understanding that if you have a pebble in your shoe and you leave it there, you're eventually going to develop a limp. And you you can learn to walk through life with a limp. But it's better to go back, take it out, and then learn to walk properly. Yeah. And then maybe help others get this pebble out of their shoe, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's the wounded healer concept. We share our woundedness with others to offer that as a hope for healing you for bet. them. And that becomes your cause. The third consequence of this kind of woundedness you're talking about, of nature, nurture, and the national of our cultural uh, wounds, which is the whole process of being anti-causal. That when a person doesn't deal with woundedness, they become very focused on themselves and really don't become committed to a cause or what we're talking about, finding their purpose. Yeah. A wound is some unresolved issue. And it's not the fact that we're wounded in life. It's a decision we make as adults to deal with them. Mm. Your wound was functioning subconsciously all these years. Right. It was manifested itself in all kinds of ways. And when you bring that to verbalization you can start to release that. Right. So let's go back to this wounded. And, you know, one other thing with, with, with a father wounded, it, it's not to be able to go back to a parent and to say you wounded me. Mm-hmm. It's not about so much what they did. It's about understanding what happened to you. It's not to fix blame. Mm-hmm. It's not to say it was your fault. I want to understand my father. I want to understand that relationship not to blame my dad. Mm-hmm. I think he did the best that he could. Right. And I've learned how to develop empathy, and I love him more today. He's been dead almost 20 years. I love him more today than I ever loved him at any point when he was alive. Mm. But I want to understand who and what I am, mm-hmm. what has molded and shaped in me. I want to know what has caused me the difficulties in forming relationships with people as an adolescent and as a young man mm-hmm. that I couldn't give myself totally to them why? Because I was hiding behind this wall of shame, right? not bringing, able to bring all of myself to that relationship. And I think this does the same thing when we try to find our cause or purpose in this world. See, when we have these issues of shame, when we have these wrong definitions of masculinity and femininity, it creates this paradigm in our lives. See, what we do as men and as women We end up with these wrong definitions. We end up in this world where we compare and we compete with other people. Mm -hmm. So think about as men. We compare our job titles and we compete for significance. We compare our wives and we compete for a sense of manhood. We compare our children and compete for a sense of fatherhood. Mm -hmm. We compare it and compete, and it destroys community. Mm. It destroys your ability to be part of something that's bigger than who and what you are. It keeps you focused on self because I'm always trying to achieve to validate or to prove myself. Mm -hmm. How in the world do I become other-centered? How do I become focused on the pain and suffering in this world and make a commitment to addressing and walking into those issues when I'm wounded in my own Mm -hmm. self? 
So it leaves us as human beings unable to fully sustain ourselves and give all of ourselves in relationships. It keeps us from having some kind of purpose that's transcendent and bigger than who and what we are because we're needy. Mm -hmm. And somewhere we've got to name these wounds. We've got to enter into them, touch them, heal them, verbalize, and then release them so that we can be the people that we were created to be. In the regards to the anti-causal piece, which is one of the reasons why people don't strive for their purpose or finding a cause they can support is because they're too busy dealing with their own woundedness. Yeah. But they're not dealing with it on a conscious level. They're dealing with it on an unconscious level. Yeah. And it cannot be healed by continually striving to achieve and acquire and get more in right. life. It just doesn't happen. Just like it didn't matter how big of a contract the Baltimore Colts gave you, that was never going to fix the problem. It would never be enough. People we know that are incredibly successful, it'll never be enough. Right. Now, I don't, I don't want to give the idea here that being successful is a negative thing. Right. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think what I teach my high school football players is that you want to get the best education so you can go to the best university, so you can go get the best job to make the most money, not just to validate who you are but so that you can best take care of your family and so that you can best enter into this world and make a difference mm-hmm. on behalf of it. Right. I think success, you know, that old word from, for success had two words that they, they've dropped out of the definition, and that was kindness and compassionate. That's part of what being successful as a human being. It's not a material thing. And, and you make the point that there is no middle ground on this, that... You're either, as a consequence of your woundedness, you're not neutral. Nobody's neutral. You're either helping or you're hurting, but you're not neutral. That's exactly right. And you might think you are, but you've got all these old messages. I had a message for years from my father that I wasn't man enough because Mm -hmm. of these emotions. High school All-American, college All-American, All-Pro, first-round draft choice. That was never going to, I couldn't get good enough. Mm -hmm. And I made the realization at one point in my career, I couldn't get any higher. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get any better or be any more successful in my chosen field. Mm. Where do you turn to? And it was empty. Empty. Yeah. Totally empty. So I think you're either helping in this world or you're in a world of hurt and you need to acknowledge that and you need to name that because it permeates every aspect of life. So, Joe, as I mentioned, there's many people listening that are like, hey, look, I'm okay. And what was the phrase years ago? I'm okay, you're okay. I believe people have an infinite capacity for survival and a limited capacity for success and significance. People know how to get by. They know how to overcome. They know how to survive, but very few know how to get to the level of thriving. And so... On one hand, you can say there are people who are keenly aware of their woundedness who maybe are trying to do something about it. There are people who are keenly aware of their woundedness who have numbed it out. There are people who are have taken their woundedness and have kind of driven themselves to a point of burnout. And there's people who are almost in the mode of dropping out where they're, they're kind of drifting through life. They've really not anchored themselves to anything. The concept of a cause, they like the concept of it, but it's, it's nothing they know They're not going to do anything with it. They really don't have any purpose. And, you know, they're just kind of going from one day to the next. 
there's also a group of folks who will go, you know, I, I love my mom and dad. I, had, I was one of the few people, I had a great mom and dad or so on and so forth. I had great family. I had this, I had that. I don't know that I have any of these wounds these guys are talking about. There's an exercise you shared with me before called the circle and the square, which has helped a number of the people you've shared this with and, and me included. And maybe you could illustrate this to the folks listening to this. So maybe they could go through this exercise as part of their journaling program and maybe uncover some things that perhaps could be worked on. Yeah, I would love to take you through that. And, uh, you know, all of us have woven into us this deep need for satisfaction, Mm -hmm. to be unconditionally loved, to be known for who and what we are and to be accepted for that. Boy, if you're out there and you've got total satisfaction, (laughs) you know. God bless you. Yeah, God bless you. (laughs) And if your marriage is everything that you've ever desired it Mm -hmm. to be, if your parenting is total satisfaction, mm-hmm. God bless you, and let's take that in this exercise and let's multiply that. Right. So here's what I want the people to do is to just grab your journals. And I want you to just take a moment and draw a circle on that. Now, in that circle, I want you to write the initials of two people. If you're a man, write the initials of a man, and if you're a woman, the initials of another woman. Think back to when you were an adolescent or pre-adolescent. Just spend some time and think through the struggles of trying to become a man or a woman, of all of the uncertainties, of all of the frustration and pains and questions about that. Now, what I want you to do is to write the initials of two people in that circle, two people that walked into your life at that stage and gave you some kind of word of affirmation who looked you in the eye and said, I see something special in you. Mm -hmm. You have value. You have worth. I see some unique skill, some unique ability. I love you and accept you for who and what you are. Think about those that affirmed you, those that advocated for it, those that gave you that kind of affection. Write those initials in those circles. Then underneath that, I want you to just write out in either sentences or phrases how they helped you, how those circumstances, how those people helped you gain a better understanding of who you are, Mm. how they touched your own identity. Just take those emotions. What was it that they said to you? What did you feel when they said that? How did you leave that encounter feeling? Just take some time and think through that. Then when you reflect over these people and their actions towards you, just write how that has impacted you today. Mm -hmm. Write about how that has impacted your own self-understanding. I think about myself this way because that person gave me unconditional love, spoke words of hope into my life and value. Then I think the fourth step on this is during the course of this week as you think and you journal and you kind of meditate on this, I want you to just write those people a thank you note. Mm -hmm. I want you to recount that experience to them. Tell them what it is that they did because often these are not intentional things that people do. They were just people that saw you, saw something special, and said that to you. So recount the experience. Write that and send them a thank you note. Thank them for what they've done in your life. 
And if these people are deceased and have passed on, I still think you ought to write that note mm -hmm. and write that out to them. Mm -hmm. This will be a great affirmation to them. Absolutely. When you think about the crisis of childhood in this country, when you see children on the playground or walking down the street, what difference would it make if you looked every one of them in the eye and gave them the power of affirmation? Mm -hmm. We don't know what children in our communities and our schools, we don't know what they're going through. What if you were just one of those adults that wanted to be known as an affirmer, mm -hmm. one that gave words of hope and validation to children? Because mm -hmm. it's never been more difficult in the history of the world than to be a child today in this culture. Mm -hmm. They're targeted with all the worst values, with all the most negative right. messages by the greatest media in the history of the world. All right, so you've got your circle, you've got those two initials, you're going to write out how that emotionally made you feel, how that has impacted you today, and then write a thank you note to them. Right. Now what I want you to do is just draw a square. And in that square, I want you to think of one person, one person that came into your life when you were struggling to become a man or a woman, when you were looking for some kind of validation that walked in and shamed you came in and said, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not strong enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not tall enough. You're not thin enough. You're just not enough to warrant being a full human being. For me, it was that moment in the basement with my dad. Mm -hmm. That shamed me. I think all of us, when you sit in silence, when you sit in solitude and you reflect on these journals and give yourself permission, you'll go back. I see it in the sports arenas all the time. Little league fields all over this country with coaches shaming young boys and girls. Mm -hmm. Oh, you throw like a girl. You're too much of a sissy. Don't cry. Don't do this. You're just not valuable enough. What I want you to do is put those initials in that square and then write out the event. Write out the circumstances, where you were when that happened. And then just reflect on this for a moment. Remember the confusion. Remember the shame, the pain when someone told you that. Then just kind of reflect on both of these experiences. Think of the lifelong consequences of either being affirmed or being ashamed. Mm -hmm. See, I think what we need to do is then make a vow to be affirmers and never shamers. Right. And I do it with a lot of people. I, I just take football coaches or coaches in general. What I like to do is take them through this exercise and then I say, I'm coming back here in 20 years and you all are going to be gone. The only thing I'm going to be teaching this to is your players. Mm -hmm. Those people that were in your house or your community or in your school. And I'm going to take them through this same exercise. I'm going to ask them to draw the circle and write the name of somebody that affirmed you. Write mm -hmm. a square or somebody shamed you. Would you ever want your initials put in some young man or woman's square? Mm. Would you ever want 20 years from now somebody to think that you were the one that helped distort their whole self-image, that hurt them, kept them from being the full human beings that they were capable of being? Powerful. It is powerful. And then I would ask you to do this. 
If you think your name might be in somebody's square, I want you to write them a note. Mm. I want you to pick up that phone and call them. And what you need to do is tell them that you now realize it wasn't about them. It had nothing to do with them. You're sorry that you did that. And you've made a commitment to never do that again. Mm. Give that gift of healing. Give that gift of affirmation. And you'll see a change in the lives of people. Mm. Very, very powerful. Well, there might have been people at the start of this that would have said, I don't have a wound. But when you ask them to do the circle and square exercise, everybody's got initials they can put in both. Absolutely. And walking through this exercise and taking the time to say, how has that impacted me? What was this event? Uh, Both positively and negatively. And then write a note in each case to those people. Uh, One of affirmation and one of... uh, uh, asking for forgiveness if you've if you've been the person who've done the wrong, and if you've been wronged by somebody, it's ultimately one of forgiveness, isn't it? Oh, it is one. You're not there to blame, but you're to understand that really wasn't about you as a young kid. Mm-hmm. You were created to be loved. You have value and worth. And for some adult to come in and to shame you right. and give you a wrong message, the problem when we're young people, we're egocentric. We automatically think it's about us. Right. And some of us, 50, 60, 70-year-olds, are still playing those old tapes when someone shamed us. They need to be erased and eradicated so that we can get on in the full bloom of all of the relationships in our lives and that we can have some kind of cause and purpose to end. And even if the person's passed on, both for affirming or for forgiveness or giving forgiveness to someone, write the note. Yeah. Write the note. I'm somebody who I preached my father's funeral. I didn't have a tear for three years. Mm. And I have worked on that relationship since he's died. Wow. See, it's never too late. I have a deeper understanding of who and what he was. Mm. And it's released me. Mm. It's freed me up. I no longer play. I'm a man. Mm -hmm. And men cry. Men feel. Men want to be loved. They want to be hugged. They want to be accepted. And I'm perfectly fine with that. And now that impacts the way I'm a dad, the way I'm a husband, the way I'm a coach, the way I am in my own vocation and on the job. Mm -hmm. Let me be who I was created to be so I can go touch and love other people. Right. The world would change if we could do that. And and ultimately, in in this process, you found your cause. You found your transcendent cause. You found your purpose. And now you're ready to put your hand to the plow and go and pursue that. And, And you're using your wounds that have been healed to now help other people. That's exactly right. And that's the process that we're trying to walk everybody through in this program, to ultimately help them identify. And again, there's folks listening to this that may have wounds that they've covered up with alcohol. And when they go through the process of not just quitting the alcohol, but to ultimately healing the wounds or finding healing for those wounds, that they can then lead others who are struggling in the same area to be an example and to be a model and also give hope and encouragement because, hey, I've been through this. I know where you're at, and now here's what can come out the other side. Yeah, All these addictions that are pathological are symptoms of some kind of deeper pain that we're trying to medicate. It also frees you up to start enjoying and redefining success in your life. Powerful stuff. There are consequences of our woundedness in our nature, in the environment in which we were nurtured, and then what Joe calls the national wound, 
which is our, our society, our cultural wounds that we have received or have been a part of. We've found out that there's three types of dad, the missing, the dismissive, and the mission-minded dad. We need to find out that ultimately as we go through the healing process, we wanna know who am I, who will love me, and what can I do? And what we know is that our woundedness affects those three areas. We learned that there are other consequences, the anti-relational consequence, the anti-causal consequence, and that either you're helping or you're hurting in regards to woundedness. You're either healing other people or you're continuing on in your own woundedness. And then Joe shared the circle and the square exercise for your own reflection and to apply and to write in your own journal. And this will help you go through the process of ultimately uncovering woundedness, uncovering how maybe you've wounded others, how you can have closure in writing these people notes, and how you can ultimately write letters of affirmation and love to those who have supported you and those who have shared their love with you. Powerful content as always. If you want to love and be loved, you must learn to identify and heal the wounds of the past. Be sure to join us for part three to learn how to develop empathy for yourself and for others. And as I sign off today, I'll leave you with the Irish blessing from Brian's mum, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.